Sometimes we think about, you know, the polluting plant or the, the you know factory or, or things like that. But what does that mean when we talk about water infrastructure issues? And I think there are a couple ways um, that that I see environmental injustice showing up uh, in terms of the water infrastructure landscape. I think, you know, what stands out to me is, is affordability. I mentioned that we have sort of a growing affordability um, problem in the Great Lakes region. We see low-income households who are who are not able to pay or, or keep up with their water bills and in some cases are being billed for water they're not even using um, because of outdated um, systems that are not able to track things like leaks um, or, you know, in Chicago, we don't have uh, a majority of homes do not have water meters even. But we see all these um, problems adding up sometimes to water debt or water shutoffs. And so when you're talking about having your water shut off due to um, inability to pay or, you know, accumulated water debt, that is an environmental injustice. Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat, the show that dives into all things Great Lakes. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. In today's episode, we're talking with Annalisa Castle, the Alliance's Clean Water and Equity Program Director. We'll be talking about water infrastructure and what needs to happen to be sure everyone around the Great Lakes region has access to safe, affordable drinking water. So hi, Annalisa. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. Sure. So let's start off at the beginning with some basics. Um, infrastructure has been the buzzword in Washington for a while. And a lot of people, when they think of infrastructure, they're thinking about like roads and bridges. And here at the Alliance for the Great Lakes, we're talking about water infrastructure. But what do we really mean when we say water infrastructure? Great question. Um, when we talk about water infrastructure, we are, of course, talking about physical infrastructure. That means um, like water treatment, storage, pumps, pipes. Um, sometimes we call that gray infrastructure. Um, we're also talking about nature-based solutions. Green stormwater infrastructure is, is a word that we use a lot um, to refer to um, the way that we use uh, and mimic sort of natural processes for soaking up stormwater and manage sort of precipitation and flooding that is only getting um, more intense with climate change. Um, but I also want to say that I think it's important we recognize that we're talking about water infrastructure. We're also talking about governance and uh, municipal and human infrastructure, sort of the systems and structures that we rely on to make decisions about planning and resource management, the local, state, and federal offices that play a role in building, managing, and maintaining physical infrastructure. And of course, the people and programs that interact with um, and serve the public that relies on water service, um, which you know under undergirds our ability to sort of live our lives every day. I think that's such a great point, Annalisa. You know, when we say infrastructure, we think about the actual pipes and the, the water that comes out of our taps and the treatment plants, but we don't think about all the different systems that are in place because it doesn't, those pipes don't just lay themselves, right? right. Somebody has to make a lot of decisions about that. So I think that's a, that's a great point. So the physical infrastructure though, and some might argue the systems, but the, particularly the physical infrastructure is a bit of a mess, particularly in a lot of the older, our older Great Lakes communities. Um, what are some of the problems facing Great Lakes cities when it comes to water infrastructure? Yeah, um, so there, there is quite a list uh, of, of things we could talk about. 
Um, I think there are a lot of things happening below ground um, in treatment facilities um, or at outflows that most people never really see. Um, things like leaking water mains, uh, pollution, treatment challenges, combined sewer overflows, or other common issues um, that water utilities um, and, and water um, resource managers in the Great Lakes region deal with every day. But then there's also a lot of things that we see and feel in daily life. Um, and that looks like a growing water affordability challenge in the Great Lakes region. Um, you know, we're seeing in Chicago, for example, water rates triple over the past decade. And that's before Chicago even started to address its lead service line problem, which is another one of those uh, items on the list that I'm going to bring up. Um, you know, many Great Lakes cities were built at a time where lead was used as the material for the, the service line, the pipe that, that draws water from the, the main under your street to the house. Um, and the science has shown for decades that lead is toxic. It can, you know, when it's ingested, it can cause developmental challenges for children. It has harmful impacts um, in both in neurological development, but also several other um, sort of health impacts and risks for adults as well. And so seven of the eight Great Lakes states are in the top 10 list for most lead service lines in the country. Um, that's a problem and it's going to be a costly one to fix. Um, and then I will also say another thing that we see every day um, as sort of a manifestation of those infrastructure challenges in the Great Lakes is urban flooding. Um, I mentioned that you know, climate change is bringing greater precipitation. Um, a, a lot of times, you know, older storm and sewer systems that are that are especially those that are combined just can't handle the volume of water. And we see things like basement backups or street flooding in a way that can cause real um, health problems, um, inhibit transportation uh, and movement and mobility around cities. Um, and then there's also a slew of, of infrastructure challenges that are a little bit more dispersed in rural settings. Um, and so all around the region, uh, we have, you know, plenty of water infrastructure challenges to take on. Um, and so I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you today to kind of share with folks a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah. And I always am flabbergasted every time I hear that statistic that out of uh, the top 10 <clears throat> states with most lead service pipes uh, in their cities that out of that are seven of the Great Lakes states. So seven out of the Great Lakes states. Um, and number one and number two are Illinois and Ohio. Am I correct on that? That's right. Uh, and I will say, actually, um, you know, some states are further along in developing those inventories than others. Um the, that list that I'm kind of referencing and that, you know, where we know Illinois and Ohio are right in, on the top of that list. Um, those are based on sort of the best um, estimates through academic and industry research. Um, but the other thing about lead service lines is so many communities don't even know where they are or how that's many shocking. they have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's shocking. I know in my town here, they had to redo some sewer lines and they found pipes they didn't even know existed. They had to go digging around to find them. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know here at the Alliance for the Great Lakes, we're always excited to see the Great Lakes be number one. But this is not an area where uh, we're very happy for it to be number one and number two, for sure. So, you know, a question I know that we get a lot, right, is <clears throat> the Alliance for the Great Lakes is a Great Lakes organization. Um, and, you know, what is a group like ours doing talking about what's happening 
under the ground in our cities and what's coming out of our taps. Because sometimes people don't see that as being connected to the lakes themselves. So why does the Alliance for the Great Lakes do so much work on water infrastructure? That's a great question. Um, The thing about water is that it's always moving and it's all connected. The Great Lakes simply do not stop at the shoreline. And about 40 million people in the U.S. and Canada rely on Great Lakes water for drinking water. Um, That's a lot of people. And we are in the business of protecting and restoring um, Great Lakes waters. So it follows that our job does not stop or start really at the shoreline either. So protecting the the health of those waters, the enjoyment uh, of those waters, the equitable access to safe, clean water has to flow from source to tap and then back again, right? It's both what we're drawing from the lakes and putting back into them and and really focusing on how do we um, protect and and take care of our relationship um, sort of full cycle. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a lot, particularly during the COVID crisis about water affordability and water shutoffs. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I know you and I have talked about a lot about is the idea that we're next to the world's largest surface freshwater resource, but people in our communities can't sometimes can't access that, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think there, you know, there are so many layers to to that problem. And there are, you know, a lot of of factors that we could that we could pick up on. And um, you know, one of those, and I know that you all have been talking about sort of federal investment in, in water infrastructure. I think we're going to go there. Um, but, but one of those, right, is sort of a, a declined investment over time in water infrastructure. We've also seen um, depopulation mean that cities have to maintain systems that are, you know, really capital intensive, like economies of scale are at play, right, where you have these huge network of gray and green infrastructure that need to be maintained in some cases by a shrinking tax base in some cases, um, in parts of, of communities that, um, you know, are just seeing people uh, uh, leaving. And so what do you, there, there's not an easy solution there. And so I'm re- I think many of us are really excited to see um, both investment and innovation to start developing some of the solutions that we know we need to those, those problems. And so we've been hinting at, you hinted at this a little bit. So we've got, right, and we've talked on some of our prior episodes about the that big bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed at the end of last year. Um, and that included a lot for the Great Lakes, including a bunch of funding for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. And it also included $50 billion for water infrastructure, including additional money for the Clean Water and Drinking Water State Revolving Funds and money to replace those lead pipes we talked about, among a bunch of other things. So there's a lot to talk about and unpack with that funding. But first, explain for us what the clean water and drinking water state revolving funds are. What are those programs and why are they important? Great question. Uh, The short answer is that they are both low interest loan programs um, through which the federal government supplies a capitalization grant to states. States typically put in um, matching funds, usually about 20%, and then can grant out or loan out um, pieces of that of that fund to communities with el- that are submitting and applying uh, for eligible projects. So the drinking water, just like it sounds, those are projects that meet guidelines around drinking water infrastructure 
investment. Um, and it's really designed to help communities meet um, the, the Safe Drinking Water Act. Likewise, the Clean Water Inf State Revolving Loan Fund is designed to help communities um, meet the requirements under the Clean Water Act. Um, but what's really exciting about um, this, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law is that we're seeing um, a significantly increased investment in those funds. And we're seeing lots of new and exciting um, sort of components, including principal forgiveness, um, a focus on getting dollars into the hands of disadvantaged communities, um, set asides for things like technical assistance um, and lead service line replacement. Uh, so those programs are really important. Um, and especially under this bipartisan infrastructure law, um, there's a lot of opportunity to really make the most of the moment. Yeah. And so the idea here is that like revolving fund means that a, a community might get a loan, but then they're paying it back to that fund so that it can be then turned back around to another community to pay for, say, their sewage treatment plant upgrades or lead pipe replacement or or things like that, correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so it sounds like there's some really exciting uh things being evolved with, with the fund, but we'll, we'll get into that for a minute. Um, but I do want, just want to talk about the amount of money, right? So we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. So it was like $20 billion or more for these revolving funds, another 15 billion for lead service lines. And that's just, I can't quite get my head around those dollar amounts, right? Like that's a whopping amount of money. Is that enough to fix the problems facing Great Lakes cities? Uh, unfortunately, no. We know that, you know, looking at something like the lead service line replacement sort of funding that was included um, in addition to the funding for the drinking water state revolving loan fund, even just looking at that, that one issue, we know that like one state like Illinois, for example, which is the top of that list of, of states with lead, highest number of lead service lines could require somewhere close to half of that, about six billion Um just for one state alone. So 15 is not going to be enough for every um, every lead service line in the country, even when you pair that with the drinking water um, investments. But it is such an important start because we have not seen this level invest of investment um, in a long time. Um, and we know that communities have been moving forward with infrastructure investments on their own, sometimes um, relying on um, less advantageous loans um, or the bond market or um, having to raise interest rates to, to make some of those um, those investments. Uh, and then also we've seen communities defer maintenance because they just haven't had access to capital uh, to, to address some of these really serious challenges that we were talking about earlier. Um, so it's not enough, but it's a really important start. Um, and it's an opportunity to make sure that we are not only spending those dollars equitably, but also, um, you know, making the types of inroads and sort of setting a new foundation for for those infrastructure, for caring for our water infrastructure the way we need to um, into the future. Yeah, and you <clears throat> mentioned um, the, the issue of equity and some of the environmental injustices and, you know, in the Alliance for the Great Lakes and with our federal policy agenda, for lawmakers in Washington, our specific item around water infrastructure reads, and I'll, I'll just read it here. It says, increase water infrastructure funding and prioritize fixing environmental injustices. 
So explain what we mean when we talk about environmental injustices as it relates to water infrastructure issues. You know, a lot of times we think about, you know, the polluting plant or the, the you know, factory or, or things like that. But what does that mean when we talk about water infrastructure issues? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think there are a couple ways um, that that I see environmental injustice showing up uh, in terms of the water infrastructure landscape. I think you know what stands out to me is is affordability. I mentioned that we have sort of a growing affordability um, problem in the Great Lakes region. We see low income households who are who are not able to pay or or keep up with their water bills, and in some cases are being billed for water they're not even using um, because of outdated um, systems that are not able to track things like leaks um, or, you know, in Chicago, we don't have uh, a majority of homes do not have water meters even, but we see all these um, problems adding up sometimes to water debt or water shutoffs. And so when you're talking about having your water shut off due to um, inability to pay or, you know, accumulated water debt, that is an environmental injustice. Um, we also talked about lead service lines. Um, I, I I happen to be calling in from the, the lead service line capital of the country. Um, Chicago is just now sort of taking on a legacy challenge that is um, almost 400,000 lead service lines still in use in this city. Um, and there is simply not uh, the the programs and that sort of governance infrastructure in place right now um, to to remove all of them at no cost to the folks who who certainly aren't responsible for putting them in the ground in the first place. Um, so when you talk about asking homeowners to finance ten fifteen thousand dollars in plumbing work on their own, not everyone's going to be able to access. The, the lead service line replacement services that we need to get lead out of our water. And that is an environmental injustice. And then I, I also mentioned urban flooding. I think, you know, flooding is one of those um, challenging issues because the solutions to, um, you know, stormwater and combined sewer overflows um, require both gray and nature, gray, gray infrastructure, those pipes, um, and na natural infrastructure. And the way that we develop communities is not equitable. And we know that, um, the sort of proximity to green space, that's going to soak up some of that excess water versus, you know, hard surfaces, all concrete, um, that overlaps with other forms of, of environmental and uh, socioeconomic injustices. Um, and so do the, the risks and impacts of basement backups and limiting mobility. Um, so when I, when I think about environmental injustice related to water infrastructure, those are the things that come to mind right away. Yeah. You know, one of the... Um, <clears throat> One of the things we've talked about a lot is, uh, you know, water affordability. And I think you know, I just want to dig in a little bit about some of the complexities there, right? So if you've got, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, you know, cities losing population. So you have smaller number of people to pay for their 
however many thousands of lead pipes out there. Um, and so that means that that tax burden, right, is on those local, the residents who, who are um, remaining there in the community. So there are fewer people paying for those. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, you, you hear people say sometimes like, well, people are being scofflaws, not paying their water bills. Um, but there's a, a pretty serious gap between that aging infrastructure, how much it's going to cost and what people can really afford. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think there is, of course, the question of of population, and then there are some deeper questions about how we are funding and financing water infrastructure. You know where where those dollars need to come from, and how they how that whether it's repaying um, loans um, or um, you know having to having to hike water rates. Like, wh- where does where does that burden get distributed, and how? There are, I think, some really big questions there. That you know, I don't have all the answers to, um, but I think it's very clear um, when we get to a place where people can't afford to pay their water bill. In some some instances, you know, having to to face down thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in water debt, um, that that the system isn't working for the for everybody, and the people who who the system is failing are oftentimes least able to to challenge that. And so I think the opportunity in front of us with certainly the the increased federal investment in water infrastructure, but the attention that that these issues are are receiving um, is really to take a hard look at how we're paying for water infrastructure, how we're managing those systems. Yeah. So we've touched on this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but I want to dig in a little bit about um, how the money goes from the federal government down to actually putting, replacing those lead pipes, for instance, or fixing the sewage treatment plant that's over that overflows during big rainstorms. Um, because there's a whole lot that happens there, right? You know, Congress writes a bill, the president signs it. Um, but explain to us what happens next, particularly around these water infrastructure dollars and how they're ultimately going to flow, pardon the pun there, uh, <laughs> down to our communities so we can can fix the, the problems that are, are on the ground. Yeah. Um, well, the federal funding package um, is super critical, but those state revolving funds you know, it's in the title, those are administered at the state level. Um, so states are responsible for, for making a lot of decisions about how those dollars move out to communities. So each state is required to produce an intended use plan where they're telling um, EPA, here are what our priorities are, here's how we're planning to use these infrastructure dollars. Um, and they're sharing lists of the projects that have applied for those dollars. They're sharing how they are prioritizing and scoring those applicants. Um, but to even get to an applicant pool, um, usually at the municipal level, um, I think there are some other eligible entities under some, certain um, sort of pieces of the programs. Um, but usually we're looking at municipalities having to put together an application that meets all the eligibility requirements that are also set at the state level, um, sometimes requires quite a bit of work um, and upfront investment in even preparing uh, an 
a successful application um, to the state. And so you're seeing a lot of decisions and resources required at the municipal and state level um, to, to even have um, the, the program work the way it needs to work so that states can then send money out to communities. Yeah, I think that's a really important resource thing to note that a, a city or a town <clears throat> doesn't just raise its hand and say, hey, I need some money. They have to actually be prepared to submit engineering plans and they're competing for some of these dollars, you know, because as we talked about, there's not enough there. So for a community to really have their plans ready to go, they've got to have the resources and the engineers and all the different staff on board to do that. Um and, you know, a couple weeks ago, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which so ultimately the money goes from the Congress and the president down to the U.S. EPA, and they then hand it out to the states and they for these revolving funds, they have some sway right over the states to say, like, <clears throat> here's how you should really spend those dollars. And they issued some really important guidance. And I know that gets into the weeds a little bit, but there were a couple big things in there, right, that, that we were pleased to see where US EPA is really telling the states or giving them some direction on how to be more equitable and making sure this money reaches communities most in need. Tell us a, just broadly about what those 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 key items were. Yeah, definitely. So we saw EPA um, give the direction that 49% of those funds um, in in the state revolving funds to be redundant <laughs> uh, need to be need to be distributed to disadvantaged communities um, at 100% principal forgiveness. Uh, we saw them provide guidance on how to how states should be defining uh, disadvantaged communities. Um, and that's a big step for EPA. Um, ultimately, states have authority over how they define disadvantaged communities, right, which changes who's eligible for principal forgiveness. Um, but we know that there are some there are some practices that are working better in terms of equity of outcome um, than others. And we saw EPA um, state really clearly, you know, where these dollars are intended to go and provide guidance on um, how 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 states need to be thinking about this. So it was it was a very it was very big. It was um, I, I believe exactly the role that EPA should be playing um, in making sure that you know this really generational investment gets into the hands of communities that most need it. The recommendations does the alliance have for making sure these dollars really um, reach the communities most in need? Yeah, well, I'm not going to get all deep into the weeds of all the conversations that we are having, but I will say that, you know, the Alliance recognizes that a lot of the work has to now happen at the state level. And so working with the states to, to evaluate um, equity in, in the administration of their state revolving funds to date and identifying where fixes are needed um, a huge focus, right, for that is is how are we defining disadvantaged communities? Are we, um, you know, are states successful in getting um, dollars out to the communities that most need it? I would say another, you know, area of focus for us is technical assistance. Um, you know, you, you were describing some of the, the barriers that communities face in even preparing an application for a water infrastructure project to send to the states to be for consideration. 
So what are the what are the roles that states need to be playing and how can we use this federal funding um, to provide technical assistance at that local level um, so that communities that most need it can can have the resources they need just to enter uh, the, the applicant pool. Um, and so those are some of the, the key areas that we are paying attention to um, at the state level and then continuing to work with with US EPA and the Congress to make sure that this is not. Um, you know, the only time, you know, I, I said generational investment and, and hopeful, and it is um, based on sort of the historic funding levels um, from the federal investment in these programs, um, but continuing to work with EPA and the Congress to make sure that the dollars keep flowing, uh, that we're monitoring, um, you know, how successful we are at seeing equitable investment in water infrastructure. Um, and, and you know, maybe I'll, last thing I'll say too is, um, you know, the, the the amount of money that each state gets from these these pots of, of, of funding um, is determined by a needs analysis that uh, EPA does every four years, and we're due for another one this year. Um, and this will be the first time that EPA is also including in their needs assessment the cost of lead service line replacement. So we saw the first year of allocation um, of, of the funding provided by the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, we saw that go out according to the current formula. Um, you know, each state gets a certain percentage, right? Um, and that did not account for lead service line costs. And so one thing we're also paying attention to, and it's, um, you know, an ongoing conversation is like, how are we making sure when states are reporting um, you know, there I mentioned sometimes inconsistent inventories about where lead service lines are, how many they have. How are we making sure that EPA is adequately auditing the, those estimates, um, allocating resources to states that most need it to get lead out of their drinking water systems, um, and continuing to um, ensure equity not just a, across states but across municipalities and within municipalities. Um, so those are all things that we are paying attention to. Um, in, in making sure that this infrastructure investment, um, you know, is, is really equipped to meet the moment. Yeah, I think you point out a couple important things there. The advocacy, even though we've got this funding, um, certainly the advocacy at the federal level, making sure that we continue to get additional investment to really fix these problems um, is important. But also, it sounds like you and a lot of your colleagues are going to be doing a ton of work at the state level as well um, to make sure that those dollars are spent um, appropriately. And it, it I, Will there be opportunities for community members or advocates or people concerned about this to weigh in? Is there like comment periods or things like that as this process goes forward? Are there what opportunities can our listeners um, think about in the future for getting involved? Yeah, I think there are a couple a couple ways to think about it. Um, first, I just want to recognize that these these state revolving loan dollars have not historically. Um, been stretched very far. Like I said, I think it's it's you know just a fraction of the overall um, funding and financing sources for water infrastructure. And so it makes sense that a lot of people probably haven't heard of these programs before this bill. So I would say maybe starting just getting familiar with what this what these pots of funding are um, and how they're working. Starting with you know listening to this podcast, um, but also we're going to continue to be talking about it and providing advocacy opportunities to folks and resources to help people understand it. Um, 
And then I think the other piece of it is, um, you know, like I said, every year states release their intended use plans where they're describing, here's how we're going to use this funding. Uh, and that's an opportunity. Um, there's always a comment period. Um, sometimes they go by very quickly, sometimes unnoticed um, uh, by by sort of the majority of, of the public. But it's an opportunity to weigh in and just get familiar with what your state, uh, what your state's working on, you know, who you're who's administering those funds and, and what their timeline is. Um, all of that is public information and is an opportunity to weigh in. And as best as we can, uh, the Alliance for the Great Lakes will try to lift up some of those opportunities as we go. Yeah, certainly more to come from us on all of this. Um, well, thank you so much, Annalisa, for taking the time to join us today. This has been a really interesting conversation um, and we appreciate you sharing all your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jen. Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, you'll find links to more information about the topics that we talked about today. And you can also sign up for updates to stay in the know about Great Lakes issues and opportunities to get involved. Special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode drops. Talk to you next week.